When an historian writes a book, there are at least two different ways to read it, two different parts. One is the narrative, the story, usually told in chronological order. The second part includes epigraphs, footnotes, source notes, photography, and the acknowledgments. Richard Norton Smith spent over six years writing and researching his new book, An Ordinary Man, The Surprising Life and Historic Presidency of Gerald R. Ford. Susan Swain interviewed Mr. Smith on the first part, the narrative, which is available in our C-SPAN video archives. Now comes that second part, the process, the research, and the extras. Richard Orange Smith, at the very beginning of your book, in the introduction at the top, you have something called an epigraph. What the, What is an epigraph? Uh, a scene setter, perhaps. Um, a, a, a curtain opener. Maybe even an overture, to, to vary the theatrical metaphor. Uh, it, it sets you up. And ideally, it is... Uh, the essence, if you will. Well, let me read the epigraph on your first page, the introduction. You say, Bob Woodward to Ford speechwriter Robert Hartman, 17 years after publication of Hartman's tell-all White House memoir, says, is there anything that stayed hidden that I should know about? And Hartman said, Ford was hidden. We're- yeah, that, there, there you have it. That's the... Uh, that's the essence. There's the justification in a couple sentences for why the next 830-odd pages. Uh, what Hartman acknowledged, and in many ways it was very generous uh, on his part, because he had written uh, a fairly typical White House tell-all, and yet he was the first to uh, concede to Bob Woodward, who had done his own uh, thorough investigating into the Ford story, that he, Hartman, for all of his uh, closeness to Ford and involvement with Ford in some of the uh, really defining events of the Ford presidency, and before that on Capitol Hill, did not, in his book, get to the heart of whatever it was, uh, worth knowing about Ford. The, the, the implication in that is it was not for lack of trying on Hartman's standpoint, but rather that Ford, contrary to his public image then and now, was less of an open book than he appeared to be. Here's another epigraph, short. You can't pull a bandage off slowly. That was about, that's the top of your chapter on the pardon. That was from Gerald R. Ford. Uh, why did you decide to use that at the top of that chapter? Because it, it's, a, it's a homely and, and utterly Fordian, if there is such a term, way of encapsulating the whole drama of the, of the Nixon pardon. If, uh, I mean, Ford had, it's interesting, <clears throat> Somewhere there in, in my treatment uh, early in the presidency, uh, at Don Rumsfeld's behest, he had brought in, a, in effect, a House intellectual 
and um, um, and I mean Robert Goodwin. I want to say Goodwin or Goldwood. Forgive me. Uh, in any event, and he talked about Ford more than holding his own in discussions with you know Harvard professors and and, and other academics uh, on public policy and other issues. But then he said something that I thought was really um, revealing. He said, invariably, Ford would sort of funnel all this information through whatever thought process he had and come back with an individual example, something on the uh, practical level. So in other words, he, he, he morphed from the theoretical, from the academic into the practical, the workable um, in ways that um, people who weren't Harvard academics would understand. And and that tells you something, first of all, about how his mind worked. Uh, and the, uh, the epigraph that you quote is as good a distillation. The, the reason you use epigraphs is because in a very few words, they reveal a great deal. At what point of the process do you choose the epigraph? And what I mean by that is it during the writing or after the writing? When does that when does that happen? It's during the writing, and it's uh, concurrent with the individual chapter that you may work on any time. I mean, they, that's not to say you don't go back later on if you encounter something in your later research that you think is superior to your uh, initial choice. But basically, I, I certainly. No chapter was completed without an epigraph. As you know, they just finished a documentary on um, Bob Caro and his editor, Robert Gottlieb, called Turn Every Page. And the reason I bring that up is because those two guys apparently don't like each other that much. But Bob Gottlieb has edited everything that Bob Caro's ever written. And when they did this documentary, they wouldn't even agree to sit down together to be interviewed. And I only bring that up because in your case, how much of the editing that went on for this book is done side by side with an editor? Well, it's not side by side. It's, uh, um, I mean, it, it, physically, if you mean physically in the same room, no, it's all done uh, online, um, which in itself, I think, maybe answers a question you're not asking but implying, which which is um, I had a, a fantastic relationship with Roger Wabri, who is a uh, now a, a very highly regarded, uh, in effect, freelance editor uh, with, with Simon & Schuster for many years. And in any event, um, my normal editor at uh, uh, HarperCollins uh, is a man named Jonathan Gale. Jonathan fell victim to COVID. And anyway, there are other factors that threatened to delay the editing process. So on his own, uh, he went out and recruited Roger. And um, boy, I, you know, it, it could not have been better. Uh, I've been at, gosh, four or five different publishers now. And I have had the incredible good fortune to work with legendary people like Alice Mayhew and Bob Loomis, uh, among others. 
Um, in my view, both the editing and critically the copy editing, which is absolutely essential in a book this size, uh, this complex, with as many moving parts, you know, it's the numbers that will always get you. <laughs> you almost try to stay away from numbers if you can. But anyway, the, both the editing, the copy editing, the production, the design, I mean, you name it. You know, you, you always wish you could have more pictures, but, you know, there are 48 images in this book, and um, that's fine. Well, you're mentioning that. What's your philosophy of photographs for a book? I'm sorry? What is your philosophy of how to use photographs in a book? Uh, simple. I, I'm not sure I would dignify it as a philosophy, but it's the book in miniature. Um, I am a throwback in many ways. In, in the subjects I write about, probably the, the way I approach it, I've never used a research assistant. Um, and that extends to pictures. And by that I mean there are 48, you have 48 images, which are 48 chances to tell a story individually and collectively. Um, and and who are you aiming at? You're aiming at the casual grazer in a bookstore. Someone who is marginally curious, curious enough to pick up a book and, and kind of skim, and they will invariably look at the pictures first. And so as important as the picture selection is, I can tell you as much time, if not more, went into writing the captions that collectively serve as, in effect, the book in miniature. And they're, they're designed, frankly, to, uh, to hook that potential reader. When did you select the photographs? Where did you select them from, and when did you do it? Well, it was late in the process, as you might imagine. Uh, the book was largely written. By the way, it used to be, speaking of the old days, it, it used to be that a big nonfiction book, um, something of this girth, would hit the market maybe about 10 months after you turned it in, quote-unquote, um, and during that time, you do things like photos and someone would do an index and you do copy editing and all that. Because of COVID and the resulting paper shortage, uh, this book was about 18 months, which actually allowed for additional time uh, for things like photos, captions, and the like. Uh, most of the photos came from the Ford Library. In fact, most of the photos were actually taken by David Kennerly, the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, photographer who really has a unique place in the Ford story, uh, became really a virtual member of the Ford family. And so um, they basically came from one or two sources. At, what's the difference between a footnote and a source note? Well, you know, that's that's a very good question, and I suspect uh, lots of people wonder. My understanding, at least, is, is actually I would rephrase that a bit to say footnotes and endnotes. So footnotes are literally at the foot of the page. When you're reading a page and at the bottom of the page, sometimes people are annoyed 
they, they think it's a distraction. Um, it hasn't prevented me from using them liberally. Um, and then the end notes are those 70 or 80 pages of very detailed uh, source noting that are at the back of the book. And it's interesting. I, I did actually, there are about 1,600 individual citations, source citations at the back of the book. I have no idea how many footnotes there are in, in the course of the book. That's actually about half of what I did on the Rockefeller biography. Um, one reason to be candid, I mean, to, it, I guess it's no secret, um, what I write, this story, it's a big story, it's a sprawling story, it's a very detailed and in some ways complex story, both the evolution of a personality and a character, uh, the, the historical context, the background, if you will, against which those take place, and then, of course, in the foreground, the, the public story, uh, the story of a, a congressional career or, or a World War II experience or the presidency, or the ex-presidency. All of those balls are being juggled in the air at the same time. What I have learned, I won't say painfully, but hopefully usefully, over the last 40 years, is you don't want to make a dense story denser. Uh, if you can uh, prune your narrative a bit, it's you're doing the reader a favor. It uh, It speeds the narrative along. This book feels to me different from other books that I've done. And people have been kind enough to say that it, it reads almost like a novel rather than what they maybe expect from a, a, a big, thick history tome. And I think one reason for that is that I have pruned a lot of material that um, I think is is great material, and it should be available to the reader. But maybe uh, you can put it at the back of the book, and if the reader wants to go there, they can find it. But it's not essential to the story that is unfolding, hopefully at a pretty good clip. Is there a difference between when you select your footnotes and when you select your endnotes? That's interesting. Um, no. I, to me, it's simultaneous. Um, it's all, and, and, and by the way, and I, again, this may, you know, I suppose everyone has their own approach. Um, every book I've done, without exception, is weighted. That is to say, it, it takes disproportionately long to write a prologue or a first chapter than the last couple of chapters. Um, and, and, and that's just because I guess you're trying to find your voice. You're trying to get your arms around a subject that you may think you know, or certainly you're curious enough uh, to want to know. Um, and there are a number of false starts. But the business of both footnoting and endnoting uh, is simultaneous. But I mean, the actual, the, the, the putting of the, you know, the, the, the the aggregation of endnotes takes place separately, but um, the, the, the material itself has been segregated 
uh, at the same time that you're writing your narrative. Explain the environment where you write. Where is it? What's the, you know, what's the setup in the in the, the place where you write, and <laughs> and and talk through the how you do this from a time standpoint. How much of it's done in the middle of the night during the day? How long do you write? All that we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but go over that yeah. if you would. Sure. Well, I um, go back a little bit. Uh, the day of President Ford, uh, uh, some of your uh, your listeners may not know, I had known President Ford. Uh, I've been director at the Ford Museum, and he did me the great honor of asking me to deliver the final eulogy at his funeral here in Grand Rapids. And we were standing um, at the gravesite at the interment, and I remember looking up at a half-finished building, which was destined to be the tallest building in Grand Rapids, and I believe the tallest residential building uh, in Michigan, outside of Detroit. Anyway, um, I remember looking up at that building, uh, absolutely God's honest truth, and saying, I'm going to live there someday. And uh, this was the beginning of 2007, and um, the idea of writing a Ford biography uh, had, had not certainly been hatched at that point. And Anyway, it, it came to pass that uh, in 2014, after I finished the Rockefeller book, I left Washington, came to Grand Rapids, knowing that I was going to write the Ford book. And sure enough, I found uh, a place in the building overlooking the Ford gravesite. So I could sit at my desk and, and look down there or at the Ford Museum or down the river, which, by the way, it's the river that opens the book uh, that uh, defines um, the early part of the story as it defines and divides Grand Rapids. So um, when do I write? You know, I wish I could tell you, like most successful writers, you know, I, I, I work in the morning. I, uh, I have a, a daily routine. You know, I get up and I do this and then this. And then I, I work, say, till lunchtime and, you know, whatever. Um, I wish I were that disciplined. Um, I find there is, well, I, mean, I will get up in the middle of the night and write from 2.30 until 5 a.m. Um, and maybe write again. In, the, in other words, there is, there's no pattern, really, um, which is, a, I guess, a pattern of its, of its own. Um, I will say, you didn't really ask this, but it's interesting. Um, implicit in what I've said before, the, the book accelerated. Um, this book took about 10 years, which actually doesn't include about three years of interviews that, that I did under the auspices of the Ford Foundation. But anyway, in terms of research, writing, rewriting, about uh, just about 10 years. Um. And it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. By the time I got halfway through, I, I, I knew it, it felt different. It just felt different from anything that I'd done before. And I couldn't really articulate why. But I do know that as I neared the end, the, the, the pace accelerated uh, notably. The last couple of chapters, which cover Ford's ex-presidency, I won't say they wrote themselves. But they came awfully close. 
And the interesting thing is, I really worried. There are chapters, well, for example, you know, there are, there are chapters in this book that focus very narrowly. I mean, for example, the pardon. I mean, there's a, there's a whole chapter that may take two weeks uh, or the very end of the Nixon presidency and the transition. It's again, it's a very intensive focus on a uh, um, narrow field, if you will. Uh, and so I wondered because he was an ex-president for 30 years and I thought, well, obviously I can't apply that same standard, that same pacing, if you will. And I was worried about it. And in fact, it turned out to be the easiest part of the book to write. And I think, and some people have told me, they think the most, the most uh, moving. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You have a, an epigraph uh, near the end of the book, and it is, I feel okay but I'm old. Jerry yeah. Ford, Jerry Ford to well wishers inquiring about his health. Where, where did you pick that up? From someone that I interviewed out in uh, in Vail. You, you remember the, the Fords? They, they had two homes, retirement homes. They lived um, in Rancho Mirage, which is very close to uh, Palm Springs, uh, for basically six months of the year during the winter months. And then, you know, when it got warm, they went to Vail, Colorado, uh, which they had discovered literally back in the 60s uh, when it was a very, uh, well, it was an embryonic ski resort in the making. And um, so anyway, I interviewed a number of their friends and associates in both places. And that particular quote came from, from one such interview. But it could have it could have stood in for a dozen others. Right on the again uh, in the front page, in the introduction, you have this at the bottom of the page called a footnote. It says the friend was shocked less by Ford's justification of the pardon than by his use of the F word, something he had never heard him employ before. Ford's use of profanity was sparing and picturesque. The harshest insult in his lexicon, quote, he doesn't know his ass from page eight, unquote, was an expression of mysterious origin, apparently unique to the 38th president. Explain that one. Well, first of all, you have to know um, that individual was one of several. Uh, Ron Nesson, for example, after Saigon fell and Congress basically decided to pull the ladder up and renege on any funding to resettle Vietnamese refugees. He, uh, he took the news in to the Oval Office, and he said it's the only time he ever heard Ford curse. So there, there, there's a pattern there. So actually, uh, you know, I can't prove this, 
but I, I think I know Ford well enough. I know the individual, who, by the way, who was citing him as having used the F word. By the way, the context is important. He was, he was the, the, the quote approximately is, this is after um, the pardon. And this individual who told me the story uh, from Grand Rapids uh, had known Ford for a number of years. Um, and he quotes him as saying, Nixon really effed up the pea patch and went on to say it will cost me the 76 election, but I had to do it. Um, I had to ask myself, does that sound like Ford? And um, because I'd been around him enough to know, he, he, really, he was an un- unconventional Paul, in a lot of ways, he didn't like gossip. Um, he didn't. He did not like dirty stories. They had to be explained to him. Mrs. Ford had a much more ribald sense of humor than the president. But in any event, knowing the source for that quote, I find it perfectly credible that Ford, like many shrewd politicians, um, in effect tailored his language to connect with uh, whoever he was talking with. And I find it perfectly credible that under those circumstances, with those two individuals, uh, he, he made very well. That's why, that's why I used it. When you read, and from our conversation in the past, I know you read a lot. Do you read the footnotes as you're reading? And I'd say the same thing about the end notes. When do you read those if you're reading some other book that you didn't write? Yeah, I'm, I read the footnotes. as I, that's To me, that's an integral part of the page that I'm reading and of the story. And because, first of all, I guess as one author to another, I know that the author believes it to be integral to the story that is unfolding page by page. So, yes, I, I read it concurrently before I, in effect, turn the page. Um Endnotes I will read as a rule as a block at the end of the of the reading process, unless um, there's something that sort of jumps off the page, and then I'm perfectly willing to go to the back of the book and and hunt down um, the the quote or the story or whatever in, in question. You mentioned Rancho Mirage, and it led me to this footnote and I want to ask you, I'll read it, but I want to ask you why you thought it should be a footnote instead of the main body of the book. While Lucy was invited to join the exclusive club, Desi was not. No minorities being admitted to its select precincts. The situation repeated itself in the 1960s when the reigning queen of comedy divorced Desi and married Gary Morton, a Borch Belt comic who was Jewish. Well, because it's it's background, it's um, I, I, you know I think it's uh, revealing, uh, and it's a useful um, thing to know about the cultural context of Rancho Mirage. Um, the, the 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 footnote refers to uh, Lucia Ball and Lucia Desi, who were among the first wave of Hollywood stars who found uh, Palm Beach and then, uh, Palm, I'm sorry, Palm Springs and then um, 
Rancho Mirage to be a great weekend getaway from Hollywood or Los Angeles. Um, and the fact that there was a pretty blatant anti-Semitism at the time, I thought was useful to know, but it didn't seem to me uh, to belong in the in the narrative that I was telling. It, it, it was a almost a distraction, um, it, it, and, and it goes back to what I said earlier about it's it's always a balancing act you know what is it that the reader has to know and what is it that you'd like the reader to know and uh, and then it's where and how you funnel that information to the reader i'm going to the end notes for a moment because there's a there's a lot of space devoted uh this is from your book on page 389, and I'll just read a little bit of it, and you can take it off from there. Um, well, this is all about a man named Little Fair. Ah, yes. And and it, I'll just read this source note at the end. Americans in their hearts, John Logie, who had Phil Buchan for his godfather, claimed that Little Fair met with Ford as well as Uncle Phil for a discussion of the Nixon pardon. Uh, I don't need to go on with much, but you did fill in a lot of the blanks back there. Who was Little Fair? Yeah, Duncan. First of all, um, it's the twenty eighth of August. Ford's been president for three weeks. He's talk about learning on the job. Okay, he's still he's just beginning to get his arms around a whole range of, of issues, whether it was a deteriorating economy or a NATO alliance that was fraying or picking a vice. You know, picking a vice president, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, um, he has his first press conference, and he thinks naively that the reporters are going to want to talk about all of these problems that he is just beginning to become acclimated to. Well, no, of course, they want to talk about Richard Nixon and Nixon's tapes and Nixon's papers, and above all, Nixon's legal prospects. Ford leaves the press conference. By the way, he misremembers. In in retrospect, and I think at the time, he left thinking, well, he, he says, is it going to be like this for the next two years? Um, the, the fact is that a majority of the questions that were asked did not pertain to Nixon. But that's not how he remembered it. So he left feeling angry at himself for not handling it better um, and at all the, and, and angry at the press for all of these questions that frankly he didn't really want to answer in the Oval Office Phil Buchan is his White House counsel his probably closest friend his early law partner and the man that he referred to as the conscience of his administration he says to Phil Buchan and Buchan knows Ford well enough to know that he's not being asked, he's being told, in effect, to to go out and find the legal rationale, uh, precedence, etc., to justify a Nixon pardon. Phil Buchan, however, being a man of conscience, is not persuaded uh, that a pardon of Richard Nixon is morally justified. 
So he breaks the promise he made to Ford to treat this as an absolute secret. And he contacts a man named Duncan Littlefair, who is the pastor of the Fountain Street Church here in Grand Rapids, someone to whom Phil Buchan is very close, and a very unorthodox um, man of God who uh, makes it very clear he has very little time for biblical miracles uh, or indeed God in the conventional sense of the word, Uh, which is the first indication that Phil Buchan, by the way, is much more than the kindly gray-haired gentleman um, that he's been portrayed. He's in some degree of anguish about this. He brings Littlefair secretly to Washington. Littlefair stays with the Buchans at the Jefferson Hotel. By the way, critically important, the Jefferson Hotel is also the home away from home for Leon Jaworski, who is the special prosecutor. And the thing (laughs) why that matters is because it was an ideal way for back-channel communications between Jaworski and the White House. And it was that back-channel by which Ford learned that it would be at least a year and possibly two years before there could be a Nixon trial. That was critical information as he weighed um, the, the utility and the timing of a part. Anyway, so Duncan Littlefair is is staying there with the Buchans. He gets up in the middle of the night and he writes a statement, a draft statement that the president could use in justifying a Nixon part. And it's very heavy, as you might imagine, on themes of mercy. That's the argument that, in effect, brought Phil Buchan around. The problem is, and 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 the, and it and it found its way into Ford's statement on a Sunday morning when he announced the pardon. After the fact, and this is the, in my opinion, the the misjudgment that Ford made. After the fact, Ford took umbrage over the fact that mercy rather than hard-headed political pragmatic judgment was the rationale for the Nixon pardon. Let me explain. Ford um, believed, strengthened in his belief by what he knew from the special prosecutor, that there was only one way to change the country's focus, to get the country focused or refocused on things like the economy, foreign policy. You know, we were we had not extricated ourselves from Southeast Asia, you know, on and on and on. These issues that Ford himself was was trying to master in those first weeks as president. The only way to do that, the only way to get Nixon off his desk and hopefully off the front pages was to pardon him. That was Ford's rationale. But that is not, I mean, it's implicit. If you read the statement, it's online, obviously, you can see it. It's implicit, but it's not explicit. And it's a classic example of where early in his presidency, Ford had not, in effect, 
mastered the difference between congressional persuasion and executive persuasion. The, the, the final thing about Duncan Littlefair is I found the Secret Service login that confirms that Duncan Littlefair did indeed visit the White House complex. Uh, he went to Phil Buchan's office in the, the then old executive office building. John Logie, who you cite there, uh, who was uh, related, in fact, to Phil Buchan, claimed, without evidence to back it up, that Littlefair saw the president. I don't believe that is the case. And I have, well, in the extended footnote that you're referring to, um, more than one source that, that backs me up. But and I, I don't mean to take so long, but it's, it's just a classic example of how almost 50 years later, there are some critical unknowns. Who knows what else uh, is hidden? Who knows, quite frankly, what secrets uh, Gerald Ford took with him to the grave? Right across the page from that, from um, the 18th chapter, Clearing the Decks, from page 401, here's a foot, uh, a source, an uh, endnote. I was driving a car, and I AI is next to it, author interview, I assume, uh, Robert Bork. Uh, it, it, the quote was, I was driving a car, Robert Bork. No one was more shocked by Ford's action than the president's brother, Dick. My first reaction was the same as everyone else's. How could he pardon that crook? Your interview with Richard Ford, who is he? Uh, Richard Ford was a younger brother uh, of, of the president's. They were very close. Um, when Ford was in his, uh, during his days in Congress, he, he'd come home most weekends, and they would uh, usher at Grace Episcopal Church here in Grand Rapids, the same church uh, where Ford was married and from which he was buried. But uh, Dick Ford uh, was the last of the Ford brothers, uh, he passed away, I want to say, maybe six years ago. But uh, I had, uh, actually, now, over, over the years, I'd had multiple conversations. But I had a formal sit-down interview with him for this, for this book. And that's when he, the, the, I have to say, one of the wonderful things about a biography, for a biography of Gerald Ford, is the Ford family, both uh, he and his siblings, and his own children all seem to have inherited the same candor gene. Um, they, they speak very frankly. Uh, the, the kids, for example, speak very frankly about the tensions um, and, in a sense, the, the, the price that they all paid for Gerald Ford pursuing his ambition to be Speaker of the House, being out on the road some years up to 200 nights a year. And um, the, the burden that that imposed, above all, on Betty Ford, but also on on the kids. In, in that footnote that's so long all about Little Fair, <clears throat> and you talked about Phil, Phil Buchan, who was the president's counsel, it's not mentioned, it is mentioned there, uh, I'm sorry, at the very bottom, about Buchan's wife, Bunny, 
Yeah. Where did you discover Bunny's notes and what kind of shape were they in when you found them? Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is uh, one of the great, for me, discoveries in, 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 in the archival excavating that I did. Um, Bunny Buchan was uh, Phil Buchan's wife. And I subsequently learned because, okay, you, you find something as invaluable as notes for a diary. She never really kept the diary much beyond January of 75. But that's okay because we're talking about the most critical period of the Ford presidency. Um, and in this case, for example, she's obviously quoting something that Phil told her. You get that I don't think you would get from any other source. Um, Ford's immediate post-press conference discussion with Phil Buchan, in which he uh, explains why he, in effect, wants to pursue the pardon. One of the things he, he mentioned there, which I still find odd, uh, he talks about Leon Jaworski and the burden on Leon Jaworski of being the one individual, in effect, who has to decide whether or not to prosecute a former president. And Ford puts the burden in the context of relieving Jaworski of that responsibility, um, which, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a remarkably generous uh, attitude perhaps naive, and the reader could decide for themselves. A footnote on the page 453, and if anybody who's listening to this wonders um, the pattern of this interview, it's not chronological. It's hodgepodge trying to figure out how an author puts together a book over a period of 10 years. This is a footnote at the bottom of the page. It says, Ford's Whiggish Belief in dispersed responsibility, gave cabinet members license during his absence to assert themselves as policymakers. On November 20th, Attorney General William Saxby notified AT&T, but not the White House, that the Justice Department was filing a suit in federal court to break up the nation's telephone company. I guess I'd have to ask, how in the world could an attorney general do something like that without at least telling the White House that he was doing it? Well, you know, it's interesting because that's a great example that I think it pushed Ford beyond his limit. Um, one might add that uh, William Saxby left the attorney general's position very shortly after that uh, incident that you referred to, uh, to become ambassador to India. And Ford recruited the president of the University of Chicago, a man named Edward Levy, uh, to, to replace him. But it is true that Ford, well, for example, I mean, Levy is a, is a good example. Um, there were always cross currents in any White House. And as we get into 1975, it's becoming increasingly apparent, at least to people who really have eyes to see, that Ronald Reagan is very likely going to challenge the president from the right. And you've got people who are naturally to the right of Gerald Ford, uh, Don Rumsfeld and his deputy Dick Cheney, 
who are trying in some ways to steer uh, the president in that direction. So, for example, anti-crime, I mean, it's always a good issue, and particularly for those on the right. Um, But Ed Levy was apolitical, and he had, imagine when Gerald Ford recruited Levy to be attorney general, he never asked politics. Uh, He left office not knowing whether Levy was a Republican or a Democrat. So Levy had his own ideas about crime fighting, and they included gun control or forms, some form of gun control. And and that led to, needless to say, uh, stresses uh, within the White House staff. Basically, what I'm saying is Ford had an old-fashioned belief in cabinet government. He looked at the Nixon White House, and, and the conclusion he drew was that the White House staff and obviously not just Holderman and Ehrlichman, but that they had become too powerful for their own good, um, that they were basically telling cabinet officers what they were going to do and what they couldn't do. And, and Ford wanted to try to redress the balance. Um, and I think more than any president, Ike, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, certainly would have appreciated uh, this approach. But, but here's, here's the inevitable result of that. Uh, because on the one hand, you can give people like your attorney general more authority. He, Bill Simon, Secretary of the Treasury, wanted to float a, a plan for what you and I would call a flat tax. Long before people like Steve Forbes were talking about it uh, in, on the campaign trail. Ford was perfectly comfortable with letting Simon on his own float a trial balloon. Not many presidents would be, and inherent in that approach is the White House staff is still there. They're still looking out for your political interests, and they are inevitably going to weigh in, as in fact Rumsfeld and Cheney did. There's a pivotal memo, 31-page memo they write late in 1975, which, among other things, tells Ford that if he wants to get reelected, he's got to impose more discipline on his cabinet and uh, and on the White House staff. Footnote, end note, end note, not uh, not a footnote. And and you you do write a lot. I know how about a lot, but you refer to Bob Hartman on many occasions in this. But this is from, I gather, his book. And it's the quote in here is Ford told Hartman that he didn't want any former members of Congress working for him. Quote, a lot of them are volunteering, and most are good guys, but they wouldn't be able to adjust to the new situation. They'd expect things to be just like before. Um, that, that seems to be an important item in the book, because uh, you would think that he would have, I mean, because they do it all the time, they grab members of Congress and bring them down and put them in the cabinet. And it's also, you see, it's 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 a actually it's a great example of that that Ford will surprise you, because you would think Ford's a creature of Congress. He's a child of Capitol Hill. He spent twenty five years up there. So, what's one of the first decisions he makes? For example, um, uh, accusing a vice president. Um, he wants someone with executive experience, someone who can be politically to his left. There's, there's a wonderful scene where 
Bob Hartman, by the way, we should explain, is I think it's not too much to say he's Ford's alter ego. He was a speechwriter, political advisor, a very polarizing figure in the White House for a number of reasons, um, famous for the inaugural address with uh, our long national nightmare is over. It's, you know, a catchphrase. Uh, but behind the scenes, there were a lot of people who thought that Ford, day in and day out, would have been a better served with a, a different set of speechwriters. Um, in any event, very early on, they're putting out this list of prospective vice presidents. And it's an exercise of public relations as much as anything else. I personally believe that Ford had really zeroed in on Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, from the beginning. Nevertheless, he went through the process. Um, Hartman shrewdly says there are five names on this list. There's not a single sitting member of of Congress. So the light bulb goes off. Ford realizes what he's telling him. He doesn't want to needlessly offend his former colleagues. And then what does he do? He says, put out, just put out that there are six names. We won't name them. And then they can all think they're on the list. (laughs) Well, again, what does that tell you? It tells you this man who is supposed to be what you see is what you get. No guile, et cetera, et cetera, is in fact, in a lot of ways, a much shrewder political operative that he's been given credit for. Who actually did write our long national nightmare is over? Well, I can only tell you what I found in an old history uh, that, again, had not been available previously. A name named Milton Friedman, not to be confused with the economist, uh, who had been a speechwriter for Jacob Javits and who came on board early in the Ford presidency. Actually, before, he came on during the vice presidency when suddenly, you know, Ford had to uh, staff up. Anyway, uh, Friedman claims that he was responsible for that phrase. Um, And that's one of the maybe minor uh, historical surprises in this book. Promoting the book, the day that uh, we're recording this, the Washington Post has a column by George Will, which is a very strong endorsement of your book. And also, uh, you got a very strong review, positive review by Michael Barona in the Wall Street Journal. And I know because I knew you were going to appear on Face the Nation, I followed that process along. And I bring that up because I want to know, first of all, how does an author like you, after 10 years of working on a book like this, prepare to try to sell it? And in the face of the nation, and I'd be interested in knowing the background on that, where you were scheduled to be on it, and then it didn't appear. So you missed that that opportunity to uh, talk about your book. Well, the vagaries of uh, of network television – Actually, they had brought four historians together um, for a kind of generalized discussion of the state of the presidency, implicit, and I emphasize implicit, against the whole backdrop of of uh, what's unfolding with Donald Trump. And um, Bob Costa did an excellent job, um, and 
and then we, we we got bumped because of the Masters golf tournament. It rained, so anyway, uh, it was Easter Sunday. So and they and they indicated that they would run it a week later. Well, it was a week later. There'd been a lot of news, so you know those things happen, um, and it wound up on YouTube. Where I don't know, you know, as many people may see it eventually, as as would have seen it. That, that's something that's new to me, as you know. I am technologically challenged, uh, to put it mildly, and and the concept of YouTube channels or YouTube itself is is somewhat foreign. Uh, but I'm I'm learning. Uh, and I, I, for example, I'm learning that the the traditional book tour, where you talk about promotion, where you know people used to go to bookstores and and uh, anyway and give formal talks, and, and has been replaced. The new book tour is really podcasts, broadcasts like this. And um, what happens when there's a review like the one that was in the journal or the George Will piece is it alerts people who might not know, uh, podcasters, among others, because uh, I, I have found over the last week or 10 days since that first review uh, appeared that there's been a, um, a, a, a notable increase of, of media interest. But, but you're right, it's a very different climate. Um, even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, a book like this you know, would have solicited an invitation to the Today Show, for example, or whatever the leading, you know, morning network program was. Uh, maybe even late night. Uh, who knows? Uh, those things don't happen anymore. And But there is an alternative uh, methodology. Uh, oh, and by the way, a lot of it's Amazon. I mean, let's face it. it's uh, <laughs> Amazon is a legitimizing instrument uh people go and they it may very well be that the reviews written on amazon have as much influence as the review in a in the sunday new york times book review several years ago we talked about this but for those who didn't hear it uh go back to where you write the atmosphere you live in when you're researching (laughs) Uh, well it's a museum it's it's um i have I, i counted the other day i have 101 autographs um, authors, uh, musicians, world leaders. I have Mahatma Gandhi next to the, when you walk in, uh, next to Helen Keller, uh, next to 11 great writers, American and British. Um, my bedroom has autographs of every president, um, but one. And uh, in any event, uh, so that's the that's the immediate uh, autographs and books. Um, I have a, a collection of about oh, it's a working library, about twelve hundred volumes on all the presidents, and um, it's an invaluable um, resource. Now, now you gave a, a significant opening when you said you have all the autographs of all the presidents, say one. <laughs> Is that because you couldn't find it or you didn't want it? Uh, I. Uh, I, I chose not to include it. And what would that be, Mr. Smith? <laughs> I'll let you guess. <laughs> uh, go back to the atmosphere and how you do it. I mean, do you, 
Do you write longhand or on the computer? Oh yeah, no, that's a, that. No, that's a great question. I, I told you I was a dinosaur in many ways, and certainly I, I literally I write in longhand. And the reason that's a habit I picked up many years ago. I used to be a speechwriter. I was a speechwriter for Senator Brooke, and uh, then um, got several people in in D.C. and in later years actually wrote for former presidents Reagan and Ford. Well, speechwriting is totally different from book writing. Uh, it's, uh, it puts a premium on facility, um, phrase making. It's not necessarily a terribly intellectual uh, process, uh, but it is a, a form of persuasion uh, or proclamation or a little bit of both. In any event, um, I could sit down and bang out a speech in an hour, uh, typing with two fingers and um, it's just it's, the brain works in one channel. And I found um, that I actually had to physically slow down when I'm writing something more substantive, whether it's a book review or, or a book. And so I write in longhand. It then is faxed. I told you I was a dinosaur. It's faxed to my long-suffering typist in Lawrence, Kansas, who's been doing this for 20 plus years and maybe the only person who can read my handwriting. Uh, And then we go back and forth, draft after draft. For this book, uh, on average, each chapter went through 30 to 40 drafts. The Rockefeller, um, no chapter went through fewer than 50 drafts, which helps to explain why it takes 10 or 14 years to write. Last, in this case, a footnote, seems a good one to end on. Um, it says that encouraged by the early signs of progress, Ford was set straight by Paul McAvoy. Quote, we've accomplished a lot, but you've got to remember that a regulatory agency is like a turtle. It's got a very thick hide. You can put a little lettuce in front of it. It will quicken its pace ever so imperceptibly, but only imperceptibly. So began the order of the turtle, complete with crystal ashtray in the shape of its namesake creature on its on his back, periodically awarded to someone in the administration who advanced for the cause of regulatory reform. And that came from Rod Hills. Explain that. Yeah. That uh, footnote. Rod Hills uh, may have been the single best interview uh, that I did for this book. Um, uh, Rod Hills, uh, deceased, I'm sorry to say, was the uh, husband of Carla Hills, uh, who was Ford's secretary of HUD. And by the way, only the third woman uh, to be a cabinet member since Frances Perkins back uh, in the New Deal. Um, Ford, interestingly, felt, for all of the disadvantages of his position as the only unelected president, there were some advantages. And chief among them was he made no promises. He made no guarantees. There were no jobs um, committed. Um, He really initially did not expect to be in the White House more than two and a half years 
And so in some ways, he was politically liberated to pursue ideas, causes that meant a lot to him, that, you know, a more traditionally elected president might have been forestalled from pursuing. In his case, it was economic deregulation, which, again, shrewdly, he didn't want to call it economic deregulation. He wanted to call it regulatory reform. Uh, and he distinguished between economic deregulation and the whole series of regulatory efforts uh, aimed at, at health, for example, and the environment. So he zeroed in. He, he At one point, there's this amazing scene. Presidents, of course, remember, all the regulatory agencies are independent. A president cannot tell, uh, you know, the, the CAB chairman what, what to do. But um, he had all 10 regulatory agency heads in to a meeting at which he put the question to them, in effect, asking them, do, you know, do we need uh, an interstate commerce commission, which, by the way, dated to Grover Cleveland's presidency, and Ford thought was perhaps superseded by uh, technology. Um, do we need the federal government to regulate telephone rates? Do we need the federal government to, to dictate where people can get a home mortgage? Um, anyway, he asked a lot of questions. He got some, some resistance. And, um, but more important, he said to Rod Hills, I want you to go up to Capitol Hill and, and determine the limits of bipartisanship on this issue. His instincts told him that, that there was an opening, that there was a window that might not come again. For example, people like Ted Kennedy had expressed interest in airline deregulation. Howard Cannon from Nevada was interested in trucking deregulation. And what Ford did was to initiate from the White House, but again, drawing upon his old congressional contacts, they put together a task force of congressional and White House staffers. They drew up legislation. Uh, Ford managed to get the railroads and the financial services industry deregulated. Uh, Jimmy Carter then critically picked up the airline and other uh, deregulata deregulation measures, which then Ronald Reagan picked up. So in other words, it became a truly bipartisan cause. Um, but Paul McAvoy, who had been at Yale, came to the White House to sort of take on oversight of this issue from Rod Hills. And um, McAvoy very uh, whimsically told the president, hey, you're, you know, we, we've made progress and that's great, but in effect, it was a cautionary note um, from outside Washington to remember just how resistant to change the federal bureaucracy is likely to be. Richard Norton Smith has worked with C-SPAN for over 30 years. You can find his television interview, Q&A with Susan Swain, on our video archives. And if you want a huge eight hours of Mr. Smith, you can, you can find him on Talking With on our podcast site at C-SPAN. We've just talked about the nuts and bolts of an ordinary man, the surprising life and historic presidency of Gerald R. Ford. Thank you, Richard Norton Smith.
Thank you, Brian, as always. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.